This is Dylan FM, a freak music club podcast on Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place. This season, we're going deep on Time Out of Mind to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Here's your host, Craig Danielov. Wesley Stace took the stage name of John Wesley Harding and claimed in an early song that he was the bastard son of Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, so it should come as no surprise that he's got some thoughts on Bob Dylan. As you'll hear today, he's an enthusiastic fan who's able to share a performing musician's perspective on Time Out of Mind, Live Bob, and many other things. As John Wesley Harding, Mr. Stace released fantastic albums such as Here Comes the Groom, which he recorded in 1989 with The Attractions, Confessions of St. Ace from 2000, and over the last 10 years, he's returned to his given name for a string of records, including the recently released Late Style. He's also the author of four novels, which were very well-reviewed, and has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others. I'll link to some great Dylan writing he's done, as well as his music, in the show notes. Wes also hosts my favorite New York City entertainment evening, The Cabinet of Wonders in which he invites a half a dozen friends, musicians, authors, comedians, etc., and puts on a modern cabaret. Check the link in the show notes to drool over the killer artists that you've missed at 100-plus editions of this fantastic event, or to look for tickets to future evenings. I wanted to talk to Wes, as well as other songwriters, musicians, and artists that you'll hear from in future episodes, to get their perspectives on Dylan and Time Out of Mind. I got what I bargained for and more, as you're about to hear. My conversation with Wes was lengthy, so today we'll only have time for part one. As usual, there's an extended edition of this episode for our Plus and Premium members. In this case, the full conversation is 90 minutes long, and there's a video version. Visit freakmusic.club join to learn more and sign up for as little as $5 a month. We run no ads, and this is all made possible by our members. For now, let's hear part one of my conversation with Wesley Stace. So Wes, thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, being willing to come talk about Time Out of Mind. Delighted to do so. I actually found a a fantastic quote from you in the piece you wrote about the Clinton-Halen book review, which would be another subject. And what you wrote in that piece was, in the 80s, he couldn't buy himself a good review with some of his finest songs. Now age 68... He can't avoid them. Comment on how you felt about Dylan in the 80s, 90s, knocked out, loaded, under the red sky, up through, even World Gone Wrong, and pre-Time Out of Mind, what were you thinking? Well, to cut to the punchline of the answer, what, he only put out one decent collection of songs in the 90s, and it was Time Out of Mind. I mean, what, what, was, what else was in the 90s? Uh, the folk songs, Under the Red Sky was at the beginning, and Surely the next album postdates the 90s. Yeah, correct. So it had been, just to give you the rundown, it was seven years since Under the Red Sky, which right. was his last original. Right. It was five years since World Gone Wrong and six right. since um, uh, Good As I've Been to You. Um, yeah, and, Love and, and Love and Theft, I don't think it was till 2001 or something. Because oh, it came out on 9-11, right. Great release date for that album. Yeah, so, you know... It's the only good collection of songs he put out in the 90s, of his own songs. The, I love the folk records, but they're, rac- they're records of traditional folk songs, presumably done to 
buy some time or reconnect with the traditional or whatever. Very exciting, but not his songs. Under the Red Sky is a thin collection of short songs that sounds like they could barely be bothered to make an album, really. I mean, it's not a very persuasive, I'm quite fond of it, but it's not a persuasive collection on any level. And then you get in the, you know, back in the 80s, knocked out, loaded and down in the groove don't seem for a second like they were made as albums at the same time. They both have the feeling of being chucked together from different sessions and odds and ends, and they end up as an album. So then the, 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 the previous good album would be what? Empire Burlesque? Yeah. I mean, Oh Mercy would be the bigger of course, milestone. I, I always forget Oh Mercy. I always forget Oh Mercy because again, it's, it's a very, it's a, of course, an album full of great songs, but I always forget it because it is so minor. It's such a, it, it was of course a big comeback record, but there's five very short songs on it. It's like for the whole, since Empire Burlesque, Dylan couldn't manage to like write any lyrics of any length or didn't want to or whatever. I, do, I don't want to hypothesize on any level about what he could and couldn't do or his reasons for doing it because that, you know, unless he writes it down, we don't know. But I, um, it feels to me that at least with time, when you arrive at Time Out of Mind and then on all the subsequent records, he suddenly can't stop writing lyrics. You know, the songs are long. I remember when Love and Theft came out and I listened to Summer Days, the day before the record came out, which would have made it the Sunday night before 9-11, to be more specific. And they played it on um, one of those uh, folkier stations in New York. And uh, I was like, oh, this is a nice Dylan kind of jump blues song. And it just never ended. It just kept going. So many words like you couldn't. And when you think back to Oh Mercy and you think back to Under the Red Sky and the fact that since Empire Burlesque, which is 85, I guess, there wasn't anything that was a decent collection of songs for 12 years. I mean, I really... It's not that Oh Mercy isn't great. It's great, but it is slight in feel as though there's just not a lot around. And of course, I know that he left Dignity off it and could have put series of dreams on and all that, but that's the album he chose to put out. It felt like getting a, as a fan, it felt like getting a lyric out of him at that time was, it was agony for him to even just produce these words. You think of those lyrics on Under the Red Sky and Two by Two and you know, the TV talking song. And it's, it's a lot it's of nursery hot. rhyme stuff. Yeah. A lot of nursery rhyme type stuff. And of course with time out of mind, suddenly you get words and there's lots of words. So that was the initial thing. And I certainly remember I had a friend who worked at Columbia and he sent me or gave me a four track CD. I think with, it was called like something four tracks from love and theft or something. And I can't remember what was on it, except lovesick was on it. And million miles was on it. It was a little four track promo. I probably still got it. Yeah. That came out. Right. That came out in August of that year. Right. Was it a legal thing or was it a a promo? I mean, you know, was it a radio? Right. It was a radio. I think it probably circulated, you know, a little early in some quarters, but there is a, you know, nice press color cover radio version. Yeah. 
Right. So that's the thing that I got. And so I was very excited with that because, and I think I remember phone, I think I phoned up Chuck Prophet and asked him if he wanted to hear it. I was living in a basement in San Francisco, which going back to, you know, which was where I was uh, when I, when I saw the news of Princess Diana dying, which, you know, you said you discussed. And um, so that would have been all the same period. But I mean, you know, clearly in the 80s and 90s, it's very, if you look at Dylan only as a producer of albums, after, you know, Street Legal, Religion, Shot of Love, Infidels, Empire Burlesque, to judge him by his albums, from then until time out of mind, he is clearly not at the top of his recording game, either in comparison to the 60s or the 70s, or indeed the 90s and aughts. But to only consider him in terms of his recorded output is a silly thing to do anyway, because we know what he was doing then. He was on the road all the time, and he decided to take the art and make it live and do it again and again and again and again with an ever-changing band. And that was the artistic project. See, you know, so he goes back where he's safe because Oh Mercy had been, you know, a critical success and was certainly some kind of a comeback album. But I've always thought very like New Morning in the sense that though it was a critically lauded comeback album, it was in fact not quite able to withstand that need of people for a comeback there wasn't quite enough there would be my personal opinion uh, and in in new morning i guess we know from chronicles he wrote to be a slightly slight album there's that good quote about how he wanted the songs to be like puffs of smoke or something that disappear i can't quite remember but so i think of oh mercy a bit like new morning and the real come uh, uh, if not for uh, new morning yeah and the real comeback is going to come, you know, with blood on the tracks a little bit later, sparking, you know, suddenly a, a wonderful flowering of albums. So, and I think of Oh Mercy in that spot and Time Out of Mind as being the real start of the real Dylan comeback, which was then remarkable. But I also see Time Out of Mind as a necessary step in the direction of a much greater album, which is Love and Theft, which I think contains almost everything that Time Out of Mind tries to do well, Love and Theft does better and is a better album on, on almost every level, I'd say. What's the thing he created and destroyed? Did that sound uh, well, or... I think at this stage in Dylan's amazing songwriting career, I mean, this is just my thoughts about it. I don't claim to be right about any of this stuff. And I, I don't, and I'm, you know, I don't even, I'm talking about it because you've asked me to talk about it. I have no wish for these feelings to be, you know, like considered deeply. They're just mine. But I feel that um, at this point in Dylan's life, it's more about the totality of what the songs are about than what the individual songs are necessarily saying on their own. You can feel in Time Out of Mind the totality of sickness in the narrator, the woman who's left him, the road he's on. When it gets to Love Out and Theft, the totality of the songs in Love and Theft is saying so much more, I think, about the world and Dylan himself. It presents a much larger, wider picture. I mean, and to the point, the totality of the songs where he might well say, 
you know, my uncles are this, my aunts are that, and then forget it. And the next verse about something else. And then he might claim his aunt's someone else entirely a verse later. It's like they seem so, so just whacked together, the lyrics, some of them. And I think that process of collage and which is what helped Dylan start writing songs again. I think that process of collage begins less satisfactorily on Time Out of Mind and reaches full flowering on Love and Theft. And also, Love and Theft is musically a lot more interesting, poor boy, floater, you know, there. So, so that's another way that love, I prefer Love and Theft, and, also, and I prefer the production. But also, I think that the stealing and and magpie tactics that may have gone on throughout his career but certainly were first heavily noticed on time out of mind you know lines from this and bits from that that whatever you think of it whether you think that's cultural appropriation or bad or good whatever you think about it that reaches again it's full flowering on love and theft where you hear something like gabriel blow your horn and then someone says that is exactly the same as gene austin's the lonesome road and you listen to it and you go, fuck me, he just stole it. He just stole that from there at, with no attribution. Sure, it's out of copyright and that's allowed. Uh, and, you know, and I, 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 I really like Dylan's reaction to that. But people, somebody said once, dared say in an interview in Rolling Stone, you know, will you, you know, do you? And he said that, you know, those fuckers, you know, those people who accuse, you know, whatever. She was so angry about it. But the funny Wussies thing is, and pussies. Yeah, there you go, exactly. And the, but the funny thing about it is, if I wrote a song called, you know, if I used the chorus of Blowing in the Wind tomorrow in a song of mine, in the way he uses these out of copyright, he, he would not consider himself a wussy and a pussy when I found myself in court really fucking quickly. You know, so it's, it, it is slightly, uh, you know, he is richer and greater and you know, has better lawyers than everybody else. But it, it, it is kind of an interesting, it is, it is, that is an interesting thing that someone has yet to fully dissect and write a really good book about. Though people, I've read a few things here and there. And I mean, the same with the paintings and the same with, you know, the bits in Chronicles that, uh, that, that incredibly assiduous critic, uh, Scott Warmoth is always finding, you know, it's like, it's it's all interesting stuff, but someone's yet to really, really dissect that. But anyway, that process also begins in time out of mind when you're you're looking at the um, you know, riding in the buggy, Miss Mary Jane, riding in the buggy, Miss Mary Jane. I'm a long way from home. Sally's got a house in Baltimore, and it's full of chicken pie. I mean, it's because it's a kid's folk song, and there it is in this. And that was, and I'm sure Dylan had done that before. We've all done it, but I think this might be the first place we really noticed that happening. And in Love and Theft, it, it's much, there's much more of it. And it's really interesting. Let's go to the album release. So A, you, you had the early four track. Immediate reaction and what, what was the build there? So we know what we thought well, of the time before. And then the, this thing comes out. Immediate reaction. Songs, production. Yeah, the immediate reaction was just fantastic. In September, I played Freight and Salvage, and I remember playing Trying to Get to Heaven Before They Closed the Door because I just wanted to get inside that song and see how it worked. It seemed to me the best Dylan song in years and years and years. Years and years and years. I mean, just like 
back to, I don't know, every grain of sand or something or in the summertime or one of those grand songs or Joker Man or something. I mean, it was such a great song. And what was great about it was, what was great about it was, if this isn't the key it's in on the album, but, you know, And that chord, that is, to me, just discovering how to play that chord, what it was, how it did it, on the recording was very exciting. And I think that kind of jazzy chord that you find there, I mean, that could be a chord that is created by the fact that the bass is so predominant on these songs and perhaps the bass is playing a substitution over a slightly less jazzy chord than that. But the effect is that chord. And when I played it acoustic, I, I just loved the sound, you know, working out what that chord was. And then I think that's what I get so excited about on Poor Boy and Floater, because these are really interesting jazz songs, chordally, with, you know, diminished chords and beautiful little weaving in and out of each other introductory lines. And I think that begins here. So trying to get to heaven before they close the door, not dark yet, Everyone liked that one. And Cold Iron's Bound. I really liked Cold Iron's Bound. And, and of course, you hear the record and immediately you're hearing Dylan's voice like that. It's right there. It's right there at the front of the record. Not like squashed, like on Under the Red Sky, like a bit disappearing. It's right there. And I, I presume that was a production decision by Lanoir. I don't know what they did to it. Probably... Sounds like, you know, putting it through an amp or something, maybe. But it's very kind of slightly dis slightly distorted, and it sounds great. So that's exciting. You know, you can hear the voice really good. And then, you know, those bass-heavy parts are, in, are very interesting. You know, and I don't know how the album was really made. I mean... To be honest, I don't need, I can't, pont I can pontificate about fucking anything, but I can't really speak with any great certainty about that. But, you know, the percussion tracks are interesting on it. On some, you like the, got the drums over in the right hand speaker, but is it actually a percussion part that's over there or is it all the whole drum kit? You know, it's kind of interesting. It's, kind the, of it's the two drummers. Please keep going with your analysis of what you hear because that's the, the fantastic thing. So trying to get to heaven, not dark yet. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah well, Cold yeah, irons down. These are the ones that excited you. And and immediately, you know, I, I, you know, I am a musician and I was a musician then, and certainly my my immediate need to get into exactly how uh, trying to get to heaven worked and i've always been quite disappointed by those later jazz versions of trying to get to heaven because although i know it's interesting when a song is reworked for to a different purpose yet what is interesting i was always disappointed because i like the original so much but what is interesting about that is what if it wasn't retrofitted but what if that's originally what trying to get to heaven sounded like is what was in Dylan's head, which is why he then took it back to that. And perhaps if that's one of those things about which he felt that Daniel Lenoir kind of got in the way and made it. Yeah. 
memory grows dimmer It doesn't hunt me like it did before I've been walking through the middle of nowhere made me think, oh, that would have sounded like something on Love and Theft. If the, you know, the version of Together, of Knocking on Heaven, Trying to Get to Heaven Before They Close the Door, that you hear live, the jazzy version, that's a bit more like, you know, a Love and Theft song. So that was kind of interesting to me too. The Jack Frost version. Yes. But of course, yes, quite. But of course, that's what I like. But suddenly, as I said before, we have words, lots of words. I mean, not like, three verses and the third one repeats and all the lines are very short and they seem to be doggerel but you know and not like we live in a political world and everything's broken this is broken that's broken i mean it's all great in the series of dreams i mean it's like it's all great but what i want is words not lists you know and um i really you know you're getting into this album and you cannot avoid the totality, the, the, to, the theme and the conceptual. That's what I'm talking about. It less being about the individual songs. And I think this is the beginning of it being less about the individual songs and more about the totality of what the album is communicating. And this album is so consistent in its miserable, parodically, comically miserable peace of mind. And of course, as we all know, Dylan then had a near-death experience with that horrible thing, and that coloured everybody's reaction to it. But of course, as we all know, the album was written beforehand. And it is amazing, all songwriters know, that, that you will be, things people know about you or the world will adhere to songs that can't possibly be about that thing because they were written beforehand you know and so this album suddenly became to people in hindsight all about death and it is a death and sickness obsessed album with very very few there are some jokes on it and, oh and that is of course another thing that will that begins here is the silly jokes like the jokes he was telling on stage about you know i used to I had a girlfriend who was a tennis player. Love meant nothing to her. And he used to say these things on stage. People are like, oh, Dill is telling jokes. Hilarious. Well, those jokes suddenly started to appear in the songs. You know, the janitor is going to sweep you off your feet. That joke then becomes a very central theme in the, the minstrelsy world of love and theft. Those silly vaudeville jokes come really front and center, you know, running for all. That's unfortunately where this episode ends. But there is much, much more. There's another 20 minutes or so in this episode available to our Plus and Premium members. And we're going to have a second episode with Wesley Stace coming in part two. So sign up or just stay tuned. My deep thanks to Wesley Stace for sharing his thoughts on Dylan and talking with us. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. It really helps. For bonus episodes and more, Become a member at freakmusic.club slash join. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at FMC underscore Dylan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>